A man who becomes conscious of the responsibility he bears toward a human being who affectionately waits for him, said Viktor Frankl, or to an unfinished work, will never be able to throw away his life. He knows the why for his existence and will be able to bear almost any how. Well, I'm certainly engaged in some serious unfinished work. I'm not entirely sure why, but I do know how I'm moving forward. Because I'm Rob Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story. Interlude on the Haggadah, an interview with Mark Gerson. So it's that time again. I hope you're feeling the Pesach power season. How many of you out there right now are scrubbing the inside of your cabinets as you listen to me? Admit it. You can raise your hands. Nobody can see you. Now, I'm a big believer in the importance of bure chametz, of cleaning out all the leaven from our lives, both on the physical and spiritual level. And there might actually be an episode lurking inside me about that somewhere. But I really feel every year as the frenzy builds and the air is redolent of cleaning agents, the call to remind us all that Pesach, like every other package of mitzvot, and certainly like every holiday, has two sides. The power provoked by the lotase, by that command to clean ourselves out, lest we, God forbid, eat or even possess any chametz, is tremendous, as is the angst that accompanies it. And it's also quite familiar. Many of us started feeling the stress back around Tubishvat, but how many of us put that much thought, much less elbow grease, into preparing for the mitzvot ase, the positive obligations that are bound up with the day, and in particular with the powerful one found in Shmot, in Exodus 13.8, where it says, You'll tell it to your children on that day, saying, It's because of this that God did for me when I came out of Egypt. A simple line, but awesome in its implications. We're not going to dive into it now, but if you have children, or have ever been a teacher, or remember what it is to be a child, you can appreciate the very powerful and problematic task of what it is to tell a story your kids won't just listen to, but will actually hear, and to do it every year, with the friends and family gathered around, making it joyful and much more complex. Family dynamic is what this night is all about, love it or no. Please, God, it should only be a success. And surely, a task of such magnitude and importance, to say nothing of its own angst-evoking nature, which also happens to be a primary purpose of the Chag, of the holiday itself, deserves as much time and preparation as the construct of your kitchen. Now, last year, I went live and talked a bit about the Pesach story as narrative therapy as it relates to my counseling work. And if you want to hear that again, you can either find it on SoundCloud or you can send me an email, robmikefoyer at gmail.com or a message on Facebook. I'll put it up there. Keep an eye out. It's always worth hearing again. But this year, I decided to take a somewhat different task, a bit more fit to this season. So here's an interview, which I hope will serve you in good stead as a preparation for the positive commandments of this fantastically exciting day, which is now old ma'at, just a little bit upon us. Basically, I can't clean your fridge for you, but God willing, I can make a little contribution to your Seder and the story that you want to tell. So, okay, here I am with Mark Gerson. He's an American businessman, investor, co-founder, and chairman of uh, United Hatzalah. He's actually a fellow podcaster, which amongst all the 
illustrious accomplishments made him warmest to my heart. And last but certainly not least, author of the new book, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. And that's really what I'm here to speak with Mark about today is a little bit of the Haggadah. So Shalom, Mark. Welcome to The Jewish Story. Michael, it's so great to be here. Thank you. I really appreciate you making time and for such an exciting topic. I think that, as you say in the book itself, preparation is half the battle. So we could do a lot worse this stage of the season to have a little conversation about the Haggadah. But before we do, I just have to ask a quick personal question, if I may. Of course. I am a lover of of, um, titles. I think that they convey a tremendous amount about what people want to say and also the precision of their message. And I think you've done extremely well. Tell me about the rabbi's husband. Now, aside from the obvious, I understand that your wife is a rabbi, but like, right. how did you come? That's a bold move. Where does that come from? The name of your podcast? Oh, uh, well, thank you. I mean, I, I love the name because, you know, as I'm sure we'll talk about in, in our discussion of the Haggadah, there's, there's no Hebrew word in the singular for face, right? There's uh-huh. Panim, which is plural. We all have many faces. We all have many identities. We all have many ways to present ourselves. So when I think, what's the singular way that I wanted to present myself in this capacity of the podcast, and also just generally, it's without a doubt as the rabbi's husband. That's my proudest appellation, is the rabbi's husband. So when I thought about how do I want to define myself to the world, particularly, but not exclusively by any means, as I discussed Torah, it is the rabbi's husband. Excellent. Wow, that's a beautiful answer. So um, before we get started in the detail, I'm just curious a little bit about the process. How does someone who as far as I can tell, has devoted a good chunk of his life to business, to investment, to understanding, as we were speaking about before we started the show, how to get the best return of investment on tzedakah. How do you come to write a book on the Haggadah? It seems, I think, to most people to be a very sort of technical pursuit. So how did that come about for you? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, well, I think you kind of just explained why I wrote the book, because the Haggadah is, yes, people might perceive it as a technical document or as a dinner program or as a, uh, a manual to get through a Jewish holiday, a holiday manual or dinner program. Sure. Or a technical pursuit. But what it actually is, it's the greatest hits of Jewish thought compiled into a guidebook that we use at the Seder, but also for life. Every passage in the Haggadah yields the most profound life lessons that enable us to live a happier, better and more meaningful life in the most actionable ways today. So I wrote the book when I began to discover what the Haggadah really was, which is this great guidebook for us. And uh, and it just became a labor of love, not even a labor, just an activity of love. And uh, as I studied the Haggadah more and more and just realized how much fascinating wisdom was packed into this book that we read every year. And, and, and that some people may look at it as, a technical thing is just just reinforces why um, why I wrote the book because it is the Haggadah is word for word the best book ever written. You know, you tell a beautiful story in your introduction um, about uh, falling in love. This the story you call the discovery of the Haggadah and and how you fell in love with it and how it led you to actually a, a deeper engagement with Torah learning in general. I can tell you that as an sure. educator, amongst all the insights that you offer, and we're going to touch on some of them soon. I have to say that that was personally, the most moving piece that I read. This idea oh, wow. that, you're, that your discovery of the Haggadah led you deeper into Torah. And I'm curious, how would you guide people in falling in love themselves with what you call like the, the book of the greatest hits in, uh, in Torah? Right. Well, I, I, I think the most, um, the most uh, important thing uh, 
the most important approach to any kind of media is first asking what is the genre, uh-huh. and so and that's especially important with the with the Haggadah. So if we look at it as a dinner program or an instruction manual or a cookbook, we're we're, we're going to read it wrong, and we're not going to get out of it what we should. It is really the great Jewish guidebook, and it's the Torah. It, it's as though the authors of the Haggadah thousands of years ago said. Pesach is the authentic Jewish New Year, which it is. It's the biblical Jewish New Year. Rosh Hashanah, it's not even in the Bible, or it's not even in the Torah. Pesach is the authentic Jewish New Year. Well, I mean, Yom Teruah is there, but it's not called, correct, it's not called the beginning of the no, year. No, it's the, the day of month. class, the day of shouting, right? Yes, yeah, the seventh, yeah. and the seventh month, Davke, yeah, sure. Yeah, and it's pro- probably shouting that Sukkot is coming, you know, to, to alert people, perhaps, that alert people the great festival Sukkot is coming, but it's not the Jewish New Year in, in the Torah. Certainly not how it's presented. Yeah. Yeah. So, but we do have a new year, which is Pesach. So I think that the authors of the Haggadah said, okay, we have this great Jewish new year of Pesach. What guidebook can we give the generations so that they can live happier and better Jewish lives in the year to come? So let's, let's put the greatest hits of Jewish thought. Let's take the most important ideas from the Torah and subsequent commentary and put it in one short book to be used at the great New Year celebration, because what do we do with the New Year in a secular context or religious context? What do we do? We consider how we did in the previous year. We take inventory of ourselves today and we think what kind of person and or people do I want to be in the coming year? And how do I do that? And the Haggadah exists to serve that function. So if I understand you correctly, essentially the authors of the Haggadah packed together almost the lead strings of all the great things you could find elsewhere in Torah. And they put it right at the hinge exactly. point of the year when everybody comes together. There's a lot of drama. Like you say, from the Torah onward, it's introduced as a dramatic day and all the threads are there. So if the family comes together and the friends come together, at least they can touch that, that hinge point of the year together with the hinge point of Torah. It's a, that's a powerful perspective. And, and in what you're saying about the Jewish New Year is important. Um, I, I'm guessing you're familiar with the fact that the sages of the Mishnah actually had an argument about when the year starts with Rabbi Yoshua and Rabbi Eliezer between Tishrei and, uh, and Nisan, between basically Rosh Hashanah and Pesach. And in many ways, Pesach is the most the more intimate of the two. Right? Right. Tishrei is the universal creation of, of Adam and Eve and the sort of the, the encompassing Jewish, uh, sorry, human story. Whereas Pesach is, is you know, kind of the, the Jewish story, something which is a passion of mine, hence the name of the show. So, right. and, and you note in, again, in your introduction that um, the Haggadah is actually not the story of the Exodus. It's, it's, an, it's an important insight, which many people miss, is that you right. come together, our, the mitzvah, the commandment is to tell the story, but the Haggadah is not the story itself. It's the tool that we use to tell the story. So in, in your understanding, how does it work? People are going to be well, sitting down in a few weeks. It's a question because... Um, it depends on how we define the Exodus. So if one were to give a student an assignment, tell the story of the Exodus, it wouldn't be that hard conceptually from the student's perspective because the entire story of the Exodus is in the biblical book of Exodus. Yeah, it's right there. It's a narrative. It's right there. But the Haggadah begins with Abraham. And then we go through uh, the Seder of B'nai Barak and Dayenu and... The story of people telling the story. And, <laughs> and the story of people telling the story. Exactly. So, but... We are telling the story of the Exodus because the instruction is to relive and retell the story. So I think it teaches us how to conceptualize the Exodus. The Exodus is not only one moment that occurred in history. It is that, but it is not only that. The Exodus is the great Jewish story upon which the the Exodus text, which tells the liberation story, is the focal point. But the Exodus story, the story of liberation, 
began with Abraham, and I would argue it's ongoing. And that's why in the, in the Haggadah it says 70 people went down to Egypt. But if you count the names in the Bible, there are only 69. Right. So who's number 70? I believe each of us is number 70 because there's, for instance, there's no Hebrew word for history, but there's a very important Hebrew word for memory. So we have no concept of something that happened to other people at a distant time in the past. But we do have a very rich concept of an ongoing story in which we are participants. So I think we can read the authors of the Haggadah want us correctly to read the Exodus story as an ongoing story that actually started with Abraham and that we are continuing to participate in, of course, which had its focal point um, in the, the book of Exodus. So this is actually a beautiful segue to, to the next question I wanted to ask you, which is you have a powerful chapter, which you call the unfinished. Right. And, and it's beautiful what you're saying, this idea of, um, you know, there are 70 people that went down to Egypt, but if you count, there's only 69, which I've always just taken as the quintessentially, you know, if we're going to have 19 blessings in our 18 blessings and, you know, et cetera, like there's never anything straightforward for Am Yisrael. But in the unfinished, right. you note how the central text of the Haggadah, which is the Arami Oveda, the declaration that the farmer makes when they bring their first fruits up to the temple and the sort of ideal structure of Jewish social religious uh, life. But that text is a, it's a Thanksgiving text. It's a it's a text of confession. It's many things. But you point out that what one would think to be the culminating statement of gratitude that God has brought us to the land of milk and honey is cut off in the Haggadah. It's not included. Right. And then you go on to demonstrate how actually one could say this is a theme throughout the text of the Haggadah, how the sort of legendary four languages of redemption to which we build the four cups is missing, missing the fifth, which I'm right. guessing you're also aware that there is even a tradition out there, not just in modern religious Zionists like, like my crowd, but also going way back of a fifth cup. But, but it's not in the structure of the God. That somehow the destination has been removed. And um, you give a beautiful uh, illustration that I want to sort of just let our listeners know about. In contrasting Moshe and Korach as two models of um, how to understand in essence, the Jewish story, the Moshe brings the great command from God of Kedoshim Tihu, you should be holy. But as you point out, it's in the future tense. It's, right. a, it's a process orientation. Whereas Korach yeah. makes the uh, assertion that the people are all holy in, in the present sense. And then you make what I think is a very bold statement is that you see, since Korach is, of course, universally condemned in the rabbinic mind, also in the text, I mean, there's no better bigger condemnation of getting swallowed by the earth, right? Yeah, and he's saying, the worst Jew in the Torah. Right, yeah, no question. He definitely, and, and is remembered as such beyond you know, in the rabbinic literature. And then you make this amazing statement that the great, unforgivable, eternal sin is saying that the Jewish people are complete. Right. So tell me more about the pitfalls of stories that have endings. I'm a great lover of story. Tell me a little bit more about that, how that drives your understanding of the Haggadah and where you see it even, you know, as you were pointing out today, the pitfalls well, of so stories are endings. That well, I'm so gratified by, by what you say and that you found meaning in that passage, because I think it's uh, my book, which I think is so important, is that the great Jewish story is unfinished. Of course, the quintessential example is Moses doesn't get to the promised land. Right. Right. I mean, if you were to tell the story of, of, of Moses, if just I mean, of course, it, it would be a, a happy if we if I were to tell the story, I would wrap up with him getting in the promised land. Right. But that's not what God does in the Torah is that Moses does not get to the promised land teaching us that great Jewish stories are unfinished. And this has a profound life lesson for each of us, as does everything in the Haggadah. But Shimon Perez was asked, what is the greatest Jewish contribution to humanity? And mm -hmm. he, of course, had a lot to choose from, being such a great champion of Jewish entrepreneurship and Israeli innovation. 
he could have picked something medical or technological or military or humanitarian or intellectual. Instead, he said, it's dissatisfaction. Really? Yeah. He said that the greatest Jewish contribution to humanity is dissatisfaction. And uh, so why? Because when we're dissatisfied, we're hungry. And, and uh, this is actually uh, fits with, the ch- with my chapter as to um, all who are hungry come need, all who are needy come and celebrate Passover. Mm-hmm. When we're dissatisfied, we're, we're hungry, but then we have to ask hungry for what? So what do we want to change about ourselves spiritually? What do we want to change about others materially? But when we're finished, we're satisfied, right? Uh-huh. But a Jew should always be dissatisfied because that is what Shimon Press said is the greatest Jewish contribution to humanity. Therefore, we should never be finished. There should always be something that we're working on, something within ourselves spiritually and something in the world uh, materially. And the moment that we say the people are holy, not might be holy or will be holy, but are holy, we're finished. I mean, that it, was Korak's in. It, it's, a, it's a beautiful insight, but I'm thinking that there's got to be someone out there listening right now who's saying, oi, <laughs> who's saying, gosh, you know, I, I, it's been a long haul. Whether you look at it from the historical perspective of 2000 years of exile and, and the desire, rightly or wrongly, to live a normal life, so to speak, in our land, or, or the sort of personal desire I do. Um, one of the things I do is spiritual counseling, and I know huh. that um, I see the power of what you're pointing out in terms of, of never really just settling and feeling that sense of drive. And it doesn't surprise me that someone like yourself who's been successful in so many fields sees this to be a powerful call. At the same time, I'm wondering, especially, and I'm drawn to this in light of this sort of daily disruption that we're all experiencing in the, in the, in the madness of the COVID world. Um, how do you actually, without living a miserable life, Pursue a Jewish life that doesn't end. You call the the full Jewish life as one that never ends. How, what, well, exactly. what advice would you give to people to to do that in a way which is nonetheless sustainable and life giving, as opposed to just the sense of endless struggle? Right. Well, I would say everyone should set a goal that they cannot achieve successfully in their lifetime. Everyone should set a goal that they cannot achieve successfully in their lifetime. So that so that so that when we die will have advanced, God willing, towards the achievement of that goal, but we will not have fulfilled it. That's the theory of big, hairy, audacious goals, meaning that, that you just got to set something out there that you're willing to struggle for, but you know you'll never reach. You know you never reach, exactly. And uh, yeah, exactly. And I think that is the, the quintessential definition of a Jewish goal is, is I'm going to pick something that's very meaningful and I'm going to work and struggle to achieve it, knowing that I'm going to die with it having been unfulfilled. But I, I think your spiritual counseling is so interesting in this context. But what, as a spiritual counselor, if somebody came to you and said, and you said, okay, how are you doing? And they said, you know, today I feel great. I'm, I'm totally satisfied. I'm done. I'm done. I'm so satisfied. I'm done, Rabbi. I'm great. I'm done. What would you say? I'd probably say first, well, then why are you calling me? But after we got past that stage, <laughs> right. um, I, I would say, okay, so... First of all, it is important to enjoy uh, a sense of accomplishment. And I think that that uh, allowing oneself to feel good about things is actually challenging for many people. At the same time, I would push against this idea of being done because only something right. which is dead is done in our world. Exactly. Right? Exactly. You know, the, what it brought up for me, you know, I, you, I'm sure you're familiar with the statement of the Mishnah that, you know, no, sorry, uh, right? it's not upon you to finish the work. Exactly. And it's sort of ultimate messianic vision. And maybe you've heard uh, Ben-Gurion's, I don't know if it's a famous statement. To me, it's one of my favorites, is that 
you know, he was a strange mix of a, a messianic pragmatist. You know, he wasn't a religious place, man, yeah. but he had a he had a certain uh, messianic vision. But he once said that if the Messiah has a phone number, then he ceases to be the Messiah. Meaning that that wow. that that aspiration for the more, for the larger, for the redemptive, which of course is so central to the Exodus story, by definition can't be fulfilled. There might be stages of accomplishment, and I think that there are different generations. Absolutely. But um, yeah, I, I think that's very and, powerful and, and, what you're saying. Well, and, and of course, one can and should take take joy. Joy, as, as I also discussed in the book, is, is, is a commandment in the Torah. We are commanded to be joyous. So yeah, on Pesach should, in particular. Uh, absolutely. And so one should take joy, of course, in one's accomplishments. But taking joy in one's accomplishments can still happen with the realization that the ultimate task, I will die being unfinished. I mean, we're just talking about our great mutual friend, Jerome Spielman, who is proving day after day with his sacred work at Ir David, the Jewish provenance in Jerusalem. Yet, I'm sure if we ask Daron, when you're 120, is there still going to be stuff to be found? Are there still going to be stories to be told? He's going to say, of course there will. But just think about in in the time that you and I have known Daron, the extraordinary work that he's done at Ir David. So this is a great example of something which really speaks to me in the work that I do in telling the Jewish story. You know, I've been telling now, I'm in my, my fourth season. I started the book of Daniel for reasons that uh, just will lay it aside for now. And right now I'm in 1972. I'm in the lead up to the, to the Yom Kippur War. So I have this sense whenever I tell the story, and, and I think your David bespeaks it well. And if you had asked someone after the destruction of the Second Temple, let's go uh, second century of the Common Era, for the next 1,500 years, you ask people, is Jerusalem the capital of, of the Jewish people? So every non-Jew who answered the question would have said, would have said well, it was, but mm. that story's over, right? And because they felt the story was over, they felt they knew what it was That's about, right? right? right. And a, but the reality is the type of work that your David is doing and the type of work, frankly, that you're doing with um, connecting the Haggadah to people's sort of ability to live a meaningful life shows, truth is you don't know what the story is about until it's over. And since what you're pointing out is that the real Jewish story never ends, so we're always in a, proce- a process of... Uh, a live engagement, not just moving the story forward, but even what it meant looking back. And that gains, it gives us a lot of power, I think, in our ability to live a meaningful life because the interpretive process is where meaning lies. Absolutely. And I think the authors of the Haggadah not only knew this, but really wanted us to understand it, which is why there are five expressions of redemption in the Torah, but four cups of wine. You know, there, 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 there could be, there should be five sons from the Torah. There are four sons. The, the, the part in the, great farmer's declaration that's interesting in and of itself when we finally come around to telling the story of the exodus in the Haggadah we do throw through an imaginary man in Deuteronomy right but but which is fascinating and I have a chapter on that but but we skip the part of the farmer's declaration where the farmer arrives in the land because we have our stories unfinished and, and the authors of the Haggadah I believe want us to really understand it and to contemplate what does it mean to live an unfinished life and to aspire to live an unfinished life. So really the goal is beyond the telling, it's a deep identification with the story. As the Mishnah says, that a person is obligated to see themselves as if they themselves went out of Egypt. So and, I, and, and, that I think, and that I think really shows why each of us is number 70. Yeah, I, I like it because 70 of course is a, also a number of wholeness, right? That, That's right. That the, the complete, sort of, as you pointed out from the beginning that there's no singular usage for the human face, it's panim not pan. I mean, pan is the 
is a facet of something, but it's but it's not a face, right? And, and um, we say shivim panim Torah that there are seventy faces to the Torah, and so then I myself is not just reader passively of the Haggadah, teller of the story in my life, really become that seventieth face. It's a, it's a beautiful it's a beautiful image. So I, I have a, I have another story as a, as a fellow author um, of fiction, um, you know, I, and also as a learner, you know, every year for a long time. Um, I used to love to buy a new Haggadah. It's like, you know, go down to, to Meisharim or another bookstore and, you know, look through it. It's exciting. And I always I recommend my students to do it all the time. At a certain point, I kind of got overwhelmed, to be honest with you. It's like, there's no end to how many Haggadot there are. And I'm curious, just first of all, on the personal level, for you, did you find it intimidating to think that um, you were going to pick up a task that almost every great mind of Jewish history has done. And also where there's a bookshelf full of predecessors, right? What was it that you felt that you had to add to people's ability to engage the Haggadah that had not yet been said? What a great question. I, I, th I think what I felt was showing people that the Haggadah is the greatest self-help book ever written, mm -hmm. that it exists as Deuteronomy says of the Torah, it exists for Deuteronomy of the Torah, it exists for your benefit, right? That, that expression, I think it's 10-7, but you know, that expression for your benefit, we would call that, oh, so it's a self-help book. Right. Exactly. And so I wanted people to be able to read the Haggadah as a great self-help book, as, as all the wisdom of the Jewish tradition packed into this short book to help us live happier, better, more fulfilling lives in the year to come in the most practical and actionable ways. So there's nothing technical about this. There's nothing abstract about it. There's nothing ethereal about it. It's all intensely practical. It's the compilation of Jewish wisdom on our Seder table for us to open, enjoy, experience, and live by starting tonight or tomorrow in the most in ways that are accessible and actionable for everybody. So on that note, would you share with us um, either what you feel to be the most important or something which just uh, strikes you like the, a thought an exercise or, or, or a uh, sure. framing insight that you that really will help people connect to what you mean by the Haggadah as a as a guide to self help. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so we can we can almost we can open almost any page and, and do this because every page has this actionable and totally interesting Jewish wisdom. So here's one, Rabbi Elazar Ben Azaria, who we know was about sixteen or seventeen at the time. Right. You know, he said, I am like a seven year old man. Now, we don't have to go through what he said, although it's important and interesting. But he said, I'm like a seven year old man. Now, he was not saying I'm like a seven year old man in my capacity as an athlete. Right. <laughs> he was Shot saying, put like days are over. <laughs> right. Right. He was saying, I'm like a seven year old man in my capacity of wisdom. Right. Leading us to ask, are we immortalizing the bragging of an adolescent in our sacred Pesach New Year? It's a good Take question. A That's what we seem to be doing. Right. We seem to be immortalizing the bragging of an adolescent. Where most of the time we think that if an adolescent brags, we should encourage him and help them to get through that phase as quickly as possible onto something more mature. Yet we are immortalizing the bragging of an adolescent in the Haggadah. So it must be teaching us something. And I think it's teaching us a profound and very actionable lesson, which is, and I think it was the Christian author, C.S. Lewis, who put it so magnificently. I'm a huge fan. But he said, well, yeah, he said, a humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking about yourself less. Or okay. the Havitz Haim who said that uh, false humility is a sin, right? So when he was seen to be bragging, what he was doing was he was just acknowledging a gift that God gave him, which was the gift of wisdom. He was a prodigal in that sense. He was as wise as a seven-year-old man at age 16. He was saying, God gave me this gift 
and he wasn't congratulating himself about it. What follows is he was acting towards uh, creating a dwelling place for God on earth with this gift. So I think all of us in the spirit of this 16 year old young man who is saying he's like a 70 year old, we should all think what great gift did God give me specifically? And how can I use that gift as a tool, as the staff in my hand to make the kind of contribution to the world that God wants for me? It's beautiful because I'm picturing at my uh, Seder table, you know, it's, it's often struck me that there's a deep misunderstanding of the idea of humility, right. uh, you know, because Moshe is famously called the most Perfect. humble of all, all men. And yet he, he, he stands up to Pharaoh. He stands up to God. You know, he splits the red. He seat. stands up to Pharaoh. He stands up to God. He takes it to an Egyptian, like yeah. when the Egyptian. Oh, yeah. And then he sees and then he sees the uh, the multiple men who were harassing the women at the well of Midian takes it to all of them. That's right. Because he, whether it's physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual, he has confidence in himself completely. Yet in that passage, you quote, it's like the author of the Torah steps out of his role as telling the story and becomes a pundit. It says, by the way, Moses, he's most humbly and ever to live. Right. Which means that, you know, it's always been taught to me that he was never one ounce more than he was classic humility, but he was also never one ounce less that, that real humility. Like you're pointing out is recognizing what I am, what I've been giving, and the responsibility that creates. So I'm picturing, in you've given a sort of a, a, a theoretical insight on what is humility, but there's also an opportunity, like you pointed out, for everyone around the, the Seder table to now say, well, what gift are you holding that it's important for you to acknowledge and own? Exactly. And the Seder leader should not let anybody say, well, I don't have any, because that's false humility. Uh -huh. Because God, God created us all in his image. God created a mission and a purpose for each of us. And he put something in our hands, a staff in our hands, which is some great gift that we have to do it. Now, the Rebbe, Menachem Shearson, I think he put it so magnificently. He, he took the phrase, um, every Jew is a guarantor for every other Jew. Right. Um, and, yeah, exactly. And, and, and he said, um, I don't know if he used this term, but he said effectively in economic terms, what does that mean? The Rebbe took language very seriously. You know, he would never say house of the sick. It was always house of healing. He would never say deadline. It was always due date. So he took Absolutely, language yeah. very seriously because God creates a world with nine or so God says, right? So words are very important. So he took these words seriously. What does it mean that we say we're a guarantor for every other Jew? And of course, the same thing could be said about any community. Any community member could say, I'm a guarantor. What it means to be a member of a community is to be a guarantor. For sure. So he said, it makes no sense to be a guarantor for somebody unless you're richer than that person in some way. True. So <laughs> Otherwise, go, you're not co-signing the loan. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Could you imagine going to the bank and saying, I'm going to guarantee the loan and the, the bank office says, OK, can I Let see, me your, see your assets? <laughs> and it turns out that, that you're poorer than the guy you're, for whom you're guaranteeing. The bank officer will say, what, what's going on here? Right. right. You wouldn't even. Um, right. That's funny. But, so the Rebbe's point so profound. So if we believe, as we should, that every Jew is a guarantor for every other Jew, then that must mean that every Jew is richer than every other Jew in some capacity, as the Rebbe explained. Wow. That's beautiful. And That's I think that all, I think this is what this 16 year old uh, young rabbi um, coming from the Seder B'nai Brock either knew or intuited is that, yes, he had this gift and humility is acknowledging this gift and then asking, how can I contribute it to God? And in beautifully, you tie it back to the fact that everyone around the Seder table now can be challenged to ask themselves. Where in my life am I richer than everyone around me that puts me in the position to be able to really be a guarantor for their growth, for their well-being? Beautiful. You know, a lot of people, I don't know, you probably have had this experience since you've been learning and teaching the Haggadah and uh, studying for so long. A lot of people are very intimidated by Seder night. 
It's one of the only things that I, I love. I live here in Israel and I've been on the sort of Israeli religious calendar for a long time. And I, I have to be honest with you, I don't miss two, two holidays in a row, two Chagim in a row. But sometimes mm. I have found that the idea of making a second Seder for some people takes the pressure off. It's like, it's like you know what? We're going to do it once. We'll do it again. And, but, but I know a lot of my peers here feel a tremendous pressure, either as parents, they want to make it right for their kids or as learners, they want to make it sort of deep or themselves, they want to connect. So um, as someone who spent so much energy in it has actually produced a book to help people with this, what do you find to be the most challenging part of the Haggadah, either as a, as a leader of the Seder or as a, a participant or personally challenging? What do you see in there that's a, that's a challenge for you? Well, I think um, there's a, there are spiritual challenges all throughout the Haggadah, which is this is the great New Year. And, and, I, and I talk about in, in New Year celebration, I talk about in the book that if you want to understand a person or a people, perhaps the best singular way to do so is to observe how they celebrate. So, mm-hmm. Tell me I more. mean, just, well, just pick like a 40 year old guy and think about, well, how does he celebrate his birthday? And just ah. think of like two very different ways. And you could probably start his biography and get a lot of the way through only knowing how he celebrated his birthday. That's right? an and interesting so, lens. I like it. Right? And so if you want to understand the Jewish people, probably the best singular way is observe how they celebrate Pesach. They tell the story to their children and in so doing, try to extract the life lessons and apply it in the year to come. So that's fundamentally what we do at our New Year's uh, celebration. So if we do this in the way that the authors of the Haggadah wanted us to, we have to ask, for instance, all who are hungry, come and eat. We have to ask, and this is one of the many questions we have to ask, what am I hungry for? So that's a challenge. And mm-hmm. and as Rav Yisrael Salanter said, we should always um, be concerned about improving ourselves spiritually and the lives of others materially, not the other way around. Yeah, one of my um, favorite quotes by him. Yeah, so so that, that that's a challenge, and but it's, it's a good challenge. Um, there are no bad challenges in the Haggadah. I mean, if someone is um, like really worried about, do I have all the right stuff for the Seder? Now, of course, the whole community of Israel has to be provided for. Everybody needs to contribute to a Pesach relief fund. I think that's effectively required, but that's not what I'm talking about here. I mean, if someone is, is, oh, did I get the right kind of brush or the egg or is this on the right plate or did we wash hands at the right moment? A lot of stress there. A lot of stress. Yeah, but it's a misinterpretation. It's like all that exists to serve these existential investigations. And Mm -hmm. if that becomes the focal point, then we got to reinterpret and get back to the existential questions. This is an important point that I've tried to drive home in a number of ways is that you know, as a person who's devoted his life essentially to the power of story, um, I, I am deeply committed to the, the tool of tension. Right? Mm. Without, without tension, you don't have a story. You lose interest quickly. And so if I understand you correctly, the, the, the details, which could be looked at either as a technical issue, or they could even be looked at as, as the structural sort of flow, should also be engaged as points of tension. If I'm, if I'm feeling stressed or I'm, I'm wondering did I do it right or why, that that tension itself should be productive as opposed to distracting me and, and, and you know, falling prey to sort of an almost pan, sort of pedantic focus on the bits. I need to be able to feel that tension and understand that this is actually what makes the story real. Because anything that you feel tension around is far more real to you than just some tale you're telling the, you know, to pass the time. Right. And I, I think it's just it's just important to distinguish between the things we do to allow us to focus on the story and realizing that those things are actually not the story. Yes. They're just what we do. So yeah. if we make a mistake here and there in, in, in that process, it's OK. Let's just get to the let's get to the heart of it. Let's discover who we are and who we can be in this great Torah context. And let's investigate that. And, and if anything gets in the way of that, forget it. 
So, I mean, I think that's a good guiding principle for taking some of the pressure off. There's another statement as I was, uh, I was reading through the book that really struck me because um, you mentioned at the beginning of the show that there's no word in Hebrew for history. Um, right. and now that's for me been a watchword and a, a guiding principle since I began my ju- journey into teaching Jewish history, the Jewish story, uh, almost 15, I think 15 years ago at this point, and, and that the power of memory is really the driver of how we relate to our past. And you have this line that Pesach is about turning ancient experience into contemporary memory, which I think in, in many ways encapsulates what we're trying to do. But I want to offer you three different sort of models on how that might be understood and, and just see what you think about any or all of them. One, of course, is classic Jewish continuity, right? One of the ways in which um, I know people who are, who are Balei Tshuva, people who didn't grow up religious um, and have become more religious. And even though Pesach is perhaps second only to lighting um, Hanukkah candles, one of the most observed aspects of, of Jewish life. Nonetheless, a lot of people lack that sort of childhood memory of what the Seder was. And so we are literally creating memories and that is itself Jewish continuity. That's one idea of maybe what you mean there. Another one is inherited wisdom that guides us, right? That's the Santayana's famous quote, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Like you point out, the Exodus story is an ongoing story. It's there in our lives, which also means the story of slavery and oppression is there. And so therefore it's perhaps an important thing to, um, to let the wisdom of the past guide us in the present. And last but not least is a quote that's very dear to my heart is that the Baal Shem Tov gives a very different version than Santayana. Not surprisingly, as a founder of Hasidut, he says that exile flows from forgetting while redemption comes from remembering. So I'm, I'm, I'm wondering when you say that Pesach is about turning ancient experience into contemporary memory, is that continuity? Is it accessing inherited wisdom? Or is it itself the way in which we bring about redemption? I think it might be all of them. I mean, in, in, in the sense is to... What are we doing? I mean, it's such a profound construct that you you offer. I mean, it's and it it really re- brings to mind like what is the quintessential ancient experience? The ancient experience is Moses on that uh, the last meal in Egypt, the night when we had the last meal in Egypt, and Moses says, "I want to make this an eternal decree, right?" So eternal decree or forever—that's a long time, right? So, but but and you know you talk about remembering, you know the the term remembering appears often in the Torah. But it's not like God ever forgot, right? It's like, it and God remembered Noah. Today. He didn't say, oh, yeah, that guy on the, on the ark. Oh, yeah, destroyed the world. No, it's, but remembering is always a cue to something important. Some important action is about to take place. Absolutely. So uh, Moses decides he wants to perpetuate the Jewish people forever. And he decides to do so in a kind of insane way through education of children. Mm-hmm. Insane because the alphabet had barely been invented. It's because nobody in the world even knew about the idea of universal literacy or mass education. And it wasn't until the 20th century when everyone kind of accepted it, literally right. until the 20th century. Sure. And yet he decides that he wants to, to, to build the future of the Jewish people to have us last forever on that basis. And he, he ties it, I believe it's Exodus 13, 14, when it says, when your children ask you. What about, what do you mean when your children ask you? What if they don't ask me? It's like, how about if your children ask you, or should children? he said, no, no, no. What does every child have in common? Every child is curious. So your child will ask you. So he was saying effectively, I meant, I meant what I said, when your children ask you. And so this is ancient experience. And so much of the Haggadah, so much of what we're doing at Seder, and so much of what we do as parent educators or as professional educators is living that ancient experience in our day. And in fact, if we had to 
to encapsulate the Seder experience in one way, we would say it's about education the children. Now, of course, when we educate our children. We also educate ourselves. Oh, yeah. Um, because we don't educate in a pediatric way. You know, we, we educate by asking and answering and discussing these profound questions and everyone can understand. That's one of the geniuses of the Torah is that, you know, in, in our home, you know, we're blessed with four kids in our home. We don't have any children's books about the Torah. Like we study the real thing. Mm. You know, it's because it, because kids at a very young age can understand, can love it, can assimilate it into their lives. And that's what we're doing on Passover night. Pesach night is we are taking that ancient experience and we're putting it into contemporary memory. And we're all participating in the same story in the same conversation. And there's a very powerful message. I think that it's worth repeating in what you said. I mean, there's many, but the one that really struck me is that the keystone to education and in this model, therefore redemption is the curiosity of our children. Absolutely. So therefore, if we have to ask ourselves, am I succeeding as a parent? Or even before I'm going into the analysis, I'm trying to make a decision as a parent about what to do, how to do it, et cetera. One of the questions I should ask is, is this going to promote curiosity or is it going to push satisfaction, right? As you were, as you were speaking before, am I, am I trying to get my kids to plateau or am I leaving them just a little bit because curiosity and dissatisfaction have a very sort of intimate relationship, you know? You're curious when you're dissatisfied with your understanding of the world as it is. That's a great way to look at it. That's you right. know, and I think that, that there's a powerful combination there, which also can bring a lot of comfort to those who end up feeling a little bit dissatisfied that the Seder wasn't what they thought it could be or would be, which is just an invitation to pick That's up great. books like yours and, and to remember that the beauty is, is that this is a long haul. The Exodus but is going to come but, around. Wait, yeah, I think you just described what that, that was a beautiful description of what might be a great Seder. Like, oh, all these things I didn't cover. I didn't finish. Exactly. You did a great job because nothing Jewish is ever finished. So if you conclude your Seder and you're like, oh, I'm dissatisfied. There are all these subjects I wanted to address or all these questions I wanted to ask and I didn't get to do it. You did a great job. I just I want to share one personal image with you. And then I have a, a last question, which is that. I, you know, I, uh, I'm a Balchuva and came to learning Torah in a serious manner later in life. And as true with many people like myself, got super excited about it, super excited. I'd never, I mean, I've always been a learner and thank God did well in school, but I'd never really encountered anything like the Torah that just challenged me on the same level that simply, um, as you point out in the book, it's uh, almost fractal. It's just infinite. You keep digging it there. Whereas the Mishnah says, hafakba, hafakba, kulaba. you keep turning it over and over and there's just more. And so right. in, in my excitement, there was a stage at which um, I was also a teacher. You know, bringing my students together at the table was was like a dream, right? I'm going to get there and I'm, I'm going to be in this position of teaching. And at a certain point, the family dynamic, my kids were still young. We thank God I have, I have five kids now, but at the time, I think there was only three. Um, it started to break down. And I, and I couldn't figure out what, what was going on because in my eyes, this was the ideal Seder. Students and asking and answering. And what I realized is that I had missed the point. The Seder was actually about the kids. The mitzvah is about he got the levincha. You got to tell it to your children and right. and in uh, something which I, I i think you could probably relate to as as writing a book that is an engagement with haggadah as a revelation of the meaning of life as opposed to the details and the technical discourse and the in the depth of torah even in that sense right is is to me a recognition that it's not as much about the content as it is as it is about the experience which is one of the great blessings that our children can always give us because you know, I could throw all the great content I want at my exactly. kids, but if I'm unable to connect them to the experience, if I'm unable to connect myself to it and through that connect them, it's it's going to go right over their heads. It will just be more information to put in the hopper to maybe be processed later, but certainly not to be moving. So I just and I, I, I believe to share that. that. 
Oh, absolutely. No, I, I think your insight there is actually in the Haggadah, because let, let's th- talk for a moment about the four questions. Sure. Um, uh, dipping, reclining, matzah, and vegetables. Okay. How many of us have been to a Seder? When, and, and the point of the four questions, of course, is to arouse the interest of the children. Right. That being said, how many of us have been to a Seder where somebody has leapt from her chair and said, oh, my God, we're dipping twice. Tell me about the Exodus. <laughs> like, Probably not nobody. anybody listening. <laughs> no, nobody. And it's not like kids these days are so or, or kids these days are so jaded. And they, back when in olden times, people were, t- were really excited by uh, dipping was far more exciting. Right. <laughs> yeah. Dip, vegetables. No. And we know that because. The great rabbis of, of yore, they would use toasted grains or popcorn. Or I learned uh, last night, actually, a, a friend, a good friend of mine is a rabbi, told me that uh, Rabbi Joseph Salvechik's grandfather would come into the Seder wearing like a pot on his head. <laughs> and, and because it's, it's teaching us about how to educate. So why are these, these four questions are mediocre? They actually don't serve the function of arousing the interest of the children. So why in 2000 years or 3000 years has somebody not said, well, let's think of four better questions and put them in because these four aren't working. The answer is because no generic questions will work because when it comes to educating our children, we have to think what is the unique access point for that specific child? And how can I educate that child in a way that's responsive to her sacred uniqueness? And so when we look at the four questions, we should think these aren't arousing the interests of my kids. And then we should think again, well, how can I do so? And then we think about each kid before us and say, well, we'll int- that's why the chapter in my book on this is called Why Whoopee Cushions Are Kosher for Passover. <laughs> I got to say, like I mentioned before in my love of titles, looking through the table of contents not only brought a smile to my face multiple times, but it really engaged my curiosity. And the truth is you just answered, in a sense, the last question I wanted to ask you, although I'll, I'll throw it out for you anyway in these last few minutes, is that is there a last thought or a uh, question you want to raise, something you want to share for people going into the holiday of how to best engage the Haggadah? Um, well, what a, what a terrific way to conclude. I mean, I think the best way to engage the Haggadah is with the realization that every passage has a profound and really interesting lesson for you. And if we don't see it, then we got to try to reinterpret because it's there. And, and in the book, I go through about 50 of the passages or so and, 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 and discuss them. But it's an intensely practical and actionable self-help book, the Haggadah. It's an intentionally actionable and practical self-help book. And I think it's so important, particularly as we conceive of Pesach, as the Bible does, as the Jewish New Year, it's so important that we realize these intensely practical lessons that are there for us, and then we can go live by them. I mean, it's beautiful. What you're saying is that we have to engage the Haggadah with faith but not in the type of faith that people might have thought of in the sort of religious discourse, but in almost a deeper and more simple faith that there is wisdom there for us and that we are capable of finding it and, uh, and benefiting from it. So That's beautiful. Right. So, so Marcus, and thank you so much for joining me here on The Jewish Story, author of The Telling, Judaism's essential book that uh, reveals the meaning of life. If people want to get their hands on the book, how are they going to go about doing that? Oh, well, thank you. Um, it's available at any online or... Um, any online bookseller uh, and uh, uh, many bookstores as well. Excellent. So it is out there. And folks, if if you uh, need more details, you can be in touch with me. And as long as we're wrapping up, I want to thank not only Mark for joining me. I want to thank all the folks that give their hard-earned money to make the show happen, keep it free and widely available. I want to invite you to join them. You can go to my website, jewishstory.co, and you'll see a button in the upper right-hand corner that says, be a patron. You can click on that to make a little bit of per-podcast support. Or if you want to dedicate a show, oh, you know what? I'm so glad I said that. My mother-in-law, God bless her, insisted I dedicate this show to myself. 
um, oddly enough, um, because it was my birthday not long ago and, and, and she wants that to be recognized. And if you want to do that as well, you can contact me, RobMikeFoyer at gmail.com, or you can find me on Facebook. I'm happy to get your messages there. I want to thank the Land of Israel Network. That's thelandofisrael.com, building a platform that lets me reach so many amazing people. And the Pardes Institute, P-A-R-D-S.org.il, for building an educational institution that gives me the privilege to teach so many fine Jews. And I want to thank you for listening. I'm Rob Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story. 